Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the day now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, December the 22nd, 2022. It's been quite a year. We're coming up in two days on December the 24th on the 10-month anniversary uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and, of course, Ukraine is very much in the news today. Uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky uh, has been in Washington, D.C., and the newspapers from the Financial Times, the London Financial Times, to the Washington Post lead with stories and photographs of Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris and Zelensky waving a Ukrainian flag. Uh, but Zelensky was in a, a business-like mood. This was no celebration. He reminded the world that USAID is not charity in his speech yesterday. Uh, and the war continues to rage, perhaps more and more out of control. Uh, the head of NATO's uh, Jan Stoltenberg reminded the world that Putin is getting exactly what he didn't want, more of NATO rather than less. Um, Europe has been transformed by the war. They're rushing arms to the Ukraine, according to the Wall Street Journal, but they're running out of ammunition. Um, the Russian military over the last 10 months has committed various kinds of war crimes. The New York Times uh, has a piece today unmasking one of these war crimes in Bucha. Um, and Zelensky now is heading home to what uh, uh, the New York Times calls a dire situation. It's a dark, depressing moment in not just European, but world history. Um, at the beginning of the year, actually in March, after the Russian invasion, uh, we had a number of conversations about Ukraine. One that was particularly re resonant was with um, uh, a professor of law and strategy at the Central, Uni uh, Central European University in Vienna, uh, Maciej uh, Kizalowski, very outspoken Polish academic. And I'm uh, honored that Maciej is joining us again today, uh, almost 10 months later. Uh, Maciej, welcome. Uh, before we went live, you seem to be in a rather dark mood. You suggested that this not, this time next year, we, we may not all be around, that this may be the last Christmas that the world can actually celebrate. Do you really mean that? Do you think this war could result in the destruction of the world? Uh, hello and thanks uh, for having me, Andrew. Well, certainly in my lifetime, I'm way too young to uh, live through Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, it's the first time where this, I think, is a realistic possibility uh, that we have uh, a deeply wounded nuclear power, uh, uh, brutal authoritarian uh, that uh, is losing conventional war um, on which it bet and miscalculated badly uh, and you know in uh, I teach a lot of managers about the realities of politics and impact on business and we often uh, talk about risk and risk is not a probability of something happening. It's a probability weighted by an outcome. A small probability that you die is a bigger risk than a large probability that you scratch your finger. Yes. So if you think about uh, the risks for the world 
uh, in terms of probability and outcome, okay, we all agree probability of nuclear escalation is small and all out nuclear uh, escalation is even smaller, but the outcome is catastrophic. And, and for the first time in my lifetime, this probability is not zero or close to zero. It's, it's, it, it, is a, it is a realistic option that, you know, Putin, you know, loses conventionally that this a, a, another wave of this, you know, Russian conscripts, poorly trained, poorly armed, um, poorly motivated because nobody knows what, what this whole thing is for, um, will, will, that it will collapse in the spring. And then hopefully uh, cooler minds will prevail and, and, and there will be some negotiated settlement as opposed to some violent escalation. Uh, Mache, when you appeared on the show in March, um, you talked about uh, what we described in, in the title of our, our conversation, the West's moral failure in the Ukrainian invasion. Has the West failed morally? My sense is it hasn't. Uh, but, but you from Central Europe and with your Polish background, maybe you have a different reading on this. How, how has the West performed? In a, in a, not just a moral, but a, a political and a military and an economic sense over the last 10 months? So it performed bravely. Uh, certainly no moral failure here, but the worry here is uh, that we are once again going through a cycle that you saw, for example, with the Taliban. Uh, since the late 1980s till, you know, post 9-11 world in which, you know, you first uh, actually support or make the problem worse. And this was the case also with Putin early on. He was, uh, you know, uh, kind of almost supported uh, in a bipartisan way as a, as a reasonable guy. Then when you no longer can support, and and we know the Taliban were supported as well. Um, then when you no longer can support, you start ignoring. That phase was in the 1990s in case of Taliban. And, uh, and then uh, it was, you know, the last 20 years in case of Putin. Um, and we know what happens after this. In this cycle, after you make the problem worse, ignore the problem, then the problem explodes and sometimes you overreact. Uh, and this was Iraq, this was Afghanistan, uh, this was mission creep. And I am worried that you, the, the West, aware of its moral failings, that I was absolutely, and as you remember, quite vehemently criticizing the West for, is now trying to overcompensate by creating you know, an unclear ending of this tragedy, um, just like it did when it realized that it ignored, uh, uh, you know, the Taliban threat uh, when 9-11 when, when happened. Is the, the comparison, I'm, I'm not sure so much with the Taliban, but maybe with ISIS, Yeah, okay. credible. Um, Mache, I mean, you're a professor of law and strategy. Presumably, Putin has a strategic goal here. Certainly the Ukrainians do, the West, everybody involved. Isn't there an end game here that in, in conventional strategic terms, like any war? Well, I mean, there, there should be, yes. Uh, and, you know, let's, 
remember that while you know the scale of this tragedy is, is huge, uh, it's also not unprecedented. Uh, we uh, had certainly not in East Central Europe, right? Yeah, well, and around the world, yes, we had a we still have a war in Yemen that cost an estimated of 300,000 uh, lives. But also in terms of end games, I think it's very good that you are bringing up end games because we need to speak more about end games here. Um, we have tons of arbitrarily designed lines in which nobody recognizes anybody else's aggressive pursuit of territory, but still you manage to freeze the conflict. Anybody who travel to Cyprus knows that actually in the capital of that uh, small island, it, it's basically divided by a UN patrolled border between the part that is uh, uh, controlled by uh, Greek Cypriots and the Turkish uh, side. Um, you know, two borders of Israel with Lebanon and Syria. Are but, but is Cyprus based um, on the same is, is that an end game that we should we should try to Emulate? Yes. Are there equivalents? Well, I mean, like, about course, Northern uh, Ireland, which is probably we, we, a very we, good we, comparison. Israel is 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 probably a better one with Russia as Israel. Um, are there historical equivalents which we can say, look, this is how this one works, so this is what we should try to emulate here? Yes, I think we should, <laughs> because uh, the point is, and we are now seeing it very clearly, that even if, uh, which is, you know, very, very unlikely, Ukraine manages to expel Putin from all its re internationally recognized borders, it doesn't necessarily mean that Putin will stop. I mean, uh, Ukraine did expel uh, bravely Putin from the north of the country all the way to back to Belarus. And now, as you surely know, there is a talk that Putin may come back in the spring from the north uh, uh, to attack Kiev. Yes? So there is nothing magical about uh, the, the borders that are internationally recognized because Putin doesn't respect international law. Yes? So, so, the does, only... so, so I take your point on Putin. Um, and there's not, it doesn't seem as if there's an awful lot we, you and I in the West, Central European countries can do with respect to him. But what about Zelensky? Is there pressure we can put on him in terms of coming to some sort of compromise that may not be ideal from a Ukrainian point of view, but certainly beats this catastrophic, tragic war? Yeah, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say pressure. I think in many ways um, uh, we should engage, the, the, the leaders of the West should engage in a, in a conversation with incredibly brave and awe-inspiring Ukrainian leadership. But the point, uh, uh, the first step towards this is to recognize what you wisely characterize, this is a tragedy. Uh, I uh, yesterday I listened to uh, uh, Professor Tim Snyder from Yale uh, speaking at MSNBC, who characterized the world as an incredibly beneficial investment into U.S. national security. I think the first point we need to understand that this is the wrong mindset. Yeah, and yes? Snyder, well, Snyder's been on the show, and of course he did warn 
us about Putin before the war. Some people thought he was a bit shrill, uh, mm. a bit paranoid, but I think he's been proved to be right, mostly. Yeah, no. So, uh, again, uh, <laughs> the, um, you can be right about the threat and then uh, commit problems, or commit to problems of mission creep, yes, and, 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 and basically overly ambitious goals to to deal with the threat once once it's realized uh, it's it's interesting because president biden has been the one who always uh, was in obama administration the defender of narrowly defined specific war objectives and now that he is the president you know hopefully he will follow his own advice from his earlier self and 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 uh, and understand that the key thing is to make ukraine safe and viable for the future, and I think um, the, the the best path to uh, to achieve this is uh, some sort of um, uh, some sort of a negotiated agreement followed by strong deterrence in terms of supporting uh, Ukraine to uh, you know further bust up its defense, so that because the only way I see we can uh, guarantee peace in Ukraine is to make it abundantly clear for Vladimir Putin that any further attempt to attack Ukraine will not be uh, in his interest. I think that's been done. What's your reading, Michay, as a professor of strategy uh, mm. of Putin? Uh, we had a, we've had many Putin experts. Um, mm. In November, we had Mark Galliotti, the Washington, D.C.-based yeah. scholar of Putin, uh, arguing that Putin thinks like a warmongering 19th century imperialist. At least he didn't say it was Hitler. Um, that makes him rational. Is he a rational actor here? Is, does he know what he's doing? Is he controlled? Does he have a goal? Yeah, absolutely. He's absolutely rational and he absolutely miscalculated. Rational actors can miscalculate, um, especially rational actors who, who have had absolute power for two decades and are surrounded by armies of yes men um, can miscalculate, but it doesn't make him uh, crazy. It doesn't make him irrational, and that's that's the hope for Ukraine that you can create a situation in which uh, the cost of further escalation would just be too high for Putin to pursue. I mean, in a sense, that's what we see the evidence of this with NATO countries. Putin is is not attacking NATO countries. He's not attacking supply lines to Ukraine uh, that go through Poland um, because deterrence works. Uh, Maciej, at the beginning uh, of the conflict in, in February, we did a number of shows on sanctions. Lots mm. of people arguing that sanctions was the answer. Has sanctions had any impact, particularly on the, the oligarchs um, surrounding Putin? Is there any pressure from within his own political economic community for him to stop this war in Russia? One of the worst problems with the discussion about sanctions is that we call everything, put everything into one box of sanctions. Yes. And there are some sanctions which have worked very well, like sanctions on technology transfer, um, uh, uh, the the fact that that Russia cannot reproduce its... uh, arsenal of of those intelligent missiles because of of the lack of components and some sanctions that um, certainly are impacting uh, Russia economically but the question is uh, whether the cost in terms of 
of of of disturbance to our economies, Western economies, is makes it kind of cost efficient. Yes, and I'm talking especially about energy sanctions because it's clear that energy is a global market, and there are other buyers who are willing to still transact with Putin. Uh, a lot of creativity have been put to to cut those routes through insurance, through caps, various things. So far, you know what we managed to achieve is to vastly increase energy prices and actually, uh, you know, put in benefits from it because he sells this, especially oil, at very high prices to to third countries that don't feel like this is a fight they want to join. So you know, some sanctions are of course no-brainer and, and sanctions on oligarchs that you mentioned are, are, are definitely a no-brainer. They, they, should, they should continue. Some sanctions, there is a question whether this is this kind of overreaction, yes, uh, of, uh, and, and do we, is it in our interest to, for example, have like a far-right pro-Putin government in Italy because people are so fed up with, um, with high prices, yes, with inflation. And, and the worry is, in your own country, you may get a you know pro-Putin far-right Republican uh, administration because people will be, will become you know like mm, angry with intolerably high high prices, yes, of of, of everyday goods. Um, so as democracies, we also need to think about uh, resi- long-term resilience, not only short-term impact, but all- long-term resilience. And and I I think some of the sanctions might have been overshooting and and a little over optimistic about our capacity to keep our societies in line and 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 kind of make them suffer for what for many people in western europe and america is still a very far away conflict yes from southern france it's actually closer to aleppo syria than to mariupol yes uh, so um so we need to keep it in mind i think and and our leaders should keep it in mind that not to overstretch the patience uh, of, uh, of, 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 of Western societies. Uh, Messe, um, you're talking to me from Vienna. You're originally from Poland. The Central European University was forced out of Hungary. And their former campus was in Budapest. What is, or what, how has life changed in, 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 in Central Europe, in the, in, in the Europe that you know, Saw a piece this morning saying that Central Europeans support Ukrainian refugees, uh, quote unquote, with reservations. I'm not quite sure what the reservations mean, but certainly the, the, your neighborhood has changed because of a refugee crisis, because of the impact of the war, because of the energy crisis. How has life changed in Central East Europe, your world, over the last 10 months? Well, so uh, we can't talk about acceptance and waning acceptance of Ukrainian refugees without uh, mentioning that many countries in this region were governed by 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 by, by right wing uh, authoritarian regimes, that, and particularly Hungary and Poland. And Poland, yes, uh, uh, who vilified refugees for years now, more than a decade in case of Hungary, yes, and. Uh, it, it would be foolish to assume that um, if you uh, vilify 
Middle Eastern or African refugees that uh, that it's not going to affect people's perceptions of any outsiders, any people seeking help, uh, that it's not going to change and creep the culture of, of a country into much more xenophobic and, uh, and hostile to any others. And, and I think that's what, 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 what happens. Uh, that, But on the uh, other hand, uh, another reading is that Central Europeans, particularly Poles, have come to their senses. Sure, they're racist. Sure, they discriminate between Catholic Ukrainians and, and, and Muslim Syrians. But at least they have a degree of humanity in recognizing uh, that, 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 uh, that, that there is a, a, a moral case to accept Ukrainian refugees. Isn't there a, a positive story here too, with caveats? Absolutely. Uh, and People are, you know, generally have good instincts. Yes, people, I, I don't think people are naturally racist. I think uh, politicians uh, who want to capitalize on those uh, demons that each of us uh, holds in some corner of, of, of ourselves, um, uh, you know, evoke those, uh, those, uh, those, 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 those bad instincts and those demons. And uh, so, so, yes, uh, because uh, uh, neither regime, neither Hungarian nor Polish regime could disavow refugees, even Orban couldn't disavow Ukrainian refugees, particularly because many of those Ukrainian refugees were of Hungarian origin, um, ethnically. Uh, and, and in case of Poland, is is because of our history with, with, with imperialist Russia. Everybody sees in Ukrainian struggle our struggles in the past. Um, uh, so, so, so both regimes needed to Uh, you know, put on hold their xenophobia in this in this case, and that and 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 you see what happens if the government doesn't poison, uh, you know, people's perceptions. People respond with enormous kindness and generosity, but of course the. Uh, the support from the state, both states, was highly uh, inadequate for families who accepted uh, refugees. They would get an equivalent of like three euros uh, for, 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 for housing a refugee, um, uh, even in, with Polish prices. That, that's nothing. Um, and, 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 and with time, this generosity and this openness wanes, especially if you have basically brought an entire generation of people distrustful of others through your xenophobic policies. Uh, Miche, lots of pieces about the association of the Hungarian regime with the far-right movements around the world. Southern Poverty Law Center just ran an interesting piece. Uh, my reading, which is rather superficial, maybe you can correct me, is that There's a split between now Hungary and Poland that the Poles have come to their senses in some ways on 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 uh, on on politics because of Ukraine, whereas Hungary hasn't. Is there any truth to that, or I, I, is the I Hungarian and Polish regimes are they on the same page here? Still? Well, I mean they are they are using different strategies on that particular issue, but I think that's the that's the biggest mistake i actually ran a piece in L L la times uh, a few months Good. ago well, you're, that's why i have you on the show to correct no, no, 
idiots no, no, like no. me. Yeah, no, 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 it's not. I, I think, I think it's natural to think that because po Polish regime is our dictator, maybe it's now better dictator. Yes, but it's, it's not. Yes, I mean, it's like Pinochet in, in the Cold War. Yes, it's. Um, it, it, it's simply a different strategy for, for Orban has just won re-election, has four more years, um, and thereby he, he basically wants, wants to occupy the position of, you know, we, are, we want to provide safety, kind of the eg national egoism uh, camp uh, in the Hungarian political landscape. Uh, the, uh, the, the Polish regime has election in 10 months. It has, uh, you know, 20% inflation, twice the size of inflation in the Eurozone. Um, that, you know, is only partly due to war in Ukraine, mostly because of irresponsible populist policies before in good times. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and this... Um, support of Zelensky became the major source of legitimacy for uh, for the regime. We had Kamala Harris, we had Joe Biden, everybody's complimenting, suddenly complimenting the, uh, the, the Polish regime, which is as awful, if not more awful. Yeah, it's, uh, it to put it's it just, mildly ironic, how, yeah. how has the, the war impacted other right-wing movements and governments, Austria, Slovakia, um Romania in, in the region and in yes. Germany I guess as well yes uh, so I I, 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 I I think the the worry is that um, the economic crisis that is coming it's kind of perceived as a double deep crisis after the covid crisis yes and everybody was hoping that this nightmare has ended with the end of the you know active stage of the pandemic uh and 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 it didn't. Uh, there is a lot of hopelessness, especially in poorer countries of Eastern Europe. And my very serious worry, and I think that the lack of appreciation of that risk that that this can be used by uh, uh, populist right wing uh, politicians, including in your country, um, uh, to basically topple liberal uh, uh, governments, yes? And then if that happens, this uh, supposed lo very low cost of the Ukrainian war that Tim Snyder was talking about yesterday on, on TV, on national TV, will not be as low. I mean, it's already not as low because we have recession, we have food crisis in the global south, the climate uh, uh, change agreements uh, are in shutters, uh, so, and there are 200,000 lives lost. So I, I would, uh, you know, question any characterization of the cost of this as, as low. Uh, but, but it can become even more disastrous if by the end of this, we lose liberal uh, government in, you, you know, we, we already had it in Italy. Uh, fortunately for now, Meloni seems to be kind of uh, toning. Meloni is, is actually on board with Again. the rest of the Western powers in terms of standing up to Putin. So Meloni yes. is more complex than some people present her as and perhaps more sophisticated and, and not as authoritarian. I mean, the idea of Maloney dismantling Italian democracy seems rather far-fetched, isn't it? 
well again you are you you are following this um, this this heuristics of if somebody is against Putin, they are surely a good guy. Yes, and no, I'm not saying that. I'm not idealizing Maloney, but I but I, I think it's always too easy to just turn these characters into cartoon figures like Maloney. No, I I I, I hear you. I'm simply saying that. Uh, an authoritarian leader can make a strategic decision to ally with the West on Ukraine and still uh, trample democracy at home. So I, I take but that we point. Did, um, we did a show in March on, uh, as it happened, coincidentally on George Soros, the founder, the spirit behind the Central European University uh, with Peter Osnos, one of his biographers. Has this whole thing, and you're at the Central University, of course, I'm sure you know George Soros, has this war and Putinism, has it, is it almost as, as if George Soros had created this narrative? Is it his worst fear or one of his fears? Uh, and how is the Central European, how is the Central European University holding up, given you've been thrown out of Budapest and now are based in Vienna? Uh Two very different questions. I, I think there were many people that, that we mentioned in the show, uh, including uh, George and, 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 and Tim Snyder, who have been rightly characterizing Russian imperialism. Uh, and, and, and they all deserve credit for being right. Um, uh, now the question, of course, is what, what are we doing next? Yes, and um, it's not always the case that somebody who was right with um, diagnosis will also be right with prescription, yes? Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Uh, but uh, in terms of Central European University, it's been a huge challenge to move a university to a new, new place, uproot all people, their families. So um, certainly uh, Viktor Orban succeeded in um, you know, in creating a major disruption for our institution. Finally, Mese, you you mentioned, uh, we talked at the beginning about the possibility, which is not inconceivable, of um, some sort of nuclear holocaust by this time next year, mm. 2023, December. What do we need to do in the next 12 months? We being you and I and our governments and public opinion and all the other forces that exist. What do we need to do to try to head off this unimaginable catastrophe? I think we, we need to have a, a solid group of people who are staunchly against Putin, staunchly Democrat and staunchly against Russian imperialism, but who are also for peace. 